Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is John Lanchester, whose latest novel, his fifth, is called The Wall. Earlier novels, Capital, Fragrant Harbor, Mr. Phillips, The Debt to Pleasure, and there's also books of nonfiction. You are an editor over at London Review of Books, is that correct? A contributing editor, which is a fancy way of saying I write pieces for them, but don't go in. I, I used to be a proper you know, green eyeshades type editor, but I've been full-time writer for more than 20 years now. And you also have written for New York Review of Books, for The New Yorker, and several other publications, primarily known as an essayist, despite your novels. One of your novels... Capital became a BBC miniseries, which is currently not available streaming because I checked with Toby Jones. How did that come out? It went well. I mean, it was difficult for me to tell because it was both completely familiar and and very alien. You know, it's an odd thing when someone adapts your book because it's it's yours and not yours at the same time. But people liked it. It won an international Emmy Award, which is like the Emmy Awards, except no one's heard of them. It's the Emmys for international stuff. And there was this super weird postscript to it. It won the International Emmy for Best Miniseries. The producer went up to accept it and the ceremony was at the Hilton Hotel in New York and it was the place from and not just the place, it was actually physically the same podium and lectern from which Trump had made his acceptance speech two days before. Derek Wax, the producer, said it was actually the strangest experience of his life literally standing at the place where Trump had 48 hours previously to accept this award. And everyone in the room was, you know, still numb and numb and in shock. I like to think not because of my book winning the award. <laughs> uh, is there any chance that we'll be seeing it here in America? I don't know. You know, the rights things are so baroque with TV and, and streaming services. And uh, even people in the business, it's often quite hard to... So, like, I noticed there's that kind of good slash bad movie Green Card. Do you remember that Peter Weir film? Oh, sure. You can stream it here, you can't stream it in Europe. There's another, that movie, Wonder Boys, from Michael Chabon's movie. Can't get the streaming thing anywhere. So the rights things for that, I think you need a PhD specifically in rights deals for streaming services to be able to answer these things. Well, the, the reason I mention that is because the story kind of feeds off your essays and your book about what happened after 2008. It was slightly the other way around in, in, in respect of Capital because what happened was I was writing this novel about... I wanted to write what I thought of as a big, fat London novel. I'd written three books before that and I wanted to write a book about the place where I live. I'm not a Londoner by birth. I've sort of adopted it or it's adopted me. Well, you grew up in Hong Kong. I did. I grew up in Hong Kong. And I wanted to write about the city and realised... And I was interested in how to change and realised I actually didn't understand the forces behind that change because they were to do with finance and economics. And that was the main drive. I know this has a certain resonance here in Berkeley and there are many other cities across the United States where economic forces fundamentally reshape 
you know, who lives in your house next door to you. And it was at that level. It was literally who our immediate neighbours were had changed because finance had changed the way London works and realised that I knew nothing about it. So I couldn't really write a novel about London unless I did. So I started educating myself about it and studying it, reading up on it. And then while I was doing that, the credit crunch happened and it suddenly turned into a, a hot journalistic topic and I started writing about it. And, and unfortunately... I'm still writing about it more than a decade later. I say unfortunately because I think the world will be a happier place when we stop, you know, stop having to be so preoccupied by economics and finance and and, and all that. Uh, you have an article from last July in the London Review of Books that I read today, and I want to go into that and some other material. But we're here to talk about your latest novel which is The Wall. Now, I understand you were working on a novel and you started having dreams? I did. I was working on a different novel and in some theoretical sense, I still am because I'm sort of stuck at the point I was then. And I began having this recurring dream about a figure standing on a wall on his own in the cold and the dark with the water on the other side of the wall. And I had it over a series of nights and started to wonder who who that person was and then realised that actually that's the wrong question, that the the question should be, what world was that? Because somehow in the dream I knew it was an altered world. And and then realised that it, what I was imagining was a world after catastrophic climate change. And then I started to think about, well, what if there is this giant wall? You know, what has changed? What's life like? And in a sense, answering that question turned into the story of the book, that the figure on the wall who's my protagonist, Joseph Kavanagh, and the, the narrator of the book, is starting a two-year tour of duty guarding this this wall, which every citizen of this country has to do, and sort of explaining the change in the world, explaining the world around the character, in a, in a sense, kind of carried me through, and that's what the novel is. Two things resonated for me. Clearly, when I saw The Wall, the title, I thought of two things. I thought, of course, of Trump and his wall, which is there to keep out people. And I also thought of Game of Thrones, and in, in some sense, this wall feels like the people inside it feel like the people more on the Game of Thrones wall because of the actual hordes of dead people coming to them. And in my head, for a while, that's what I was seeing until I realized this is Britain. It is, basically. It's an altered version of Britain. It's an island, it's an island in the North Atlantic with a 10,000-kilometer, you know, 6,000-mile concrete wall around it I, I I, can't claim to have been inspired directly by Game of Thrones love it though I do because as um, George R. R. Martin's wall is 800 feet high and it's made of ice and magic and mine's 15 feet high and it's made of concrete more prosaically but there was a, a sort of mutual point of departure I think which is a common point of departure because he talked about being powerfully affected by a trip to Hadrian's wall which is the, the wall in the north of England which was one of the at the edge of the Roman Empire and I've always found Hadrian's Wall very, very evocative. And interestingly, it's getting more so over over time as we find out more about the archaeology and more about the the lives of the soldiers who lived on it. I mean, for one thing, it's about the size of the wall in my book. It's the, the, it's like the soil is largely filled in now, but when it was built, it was about 15 feet high with a trench in front. And we now know that the soldiers who served on it were from wildly disparate parts of the Roman Empire. They were from modern-day North Africa, modern-day Syria, modern-day Belgium. There's something very evocative about that, that, that they must have had this extraordinarily strong sense of being right on the edge of the world, you know, standing there looking out into the misty distance of 
what we now call Scotland, waiting for furious Pictish warriors to start chucking spears at them. I mean, you can almost feel the sense of isolation and distance and danger. And that is definitely in my book, that, that feeling of guarding something when you're right on the edge of the world you know. When I was reading, I was trying to see, figure out what was on one side of the wall, water, because there are no beaches anymore, because the uh, the water has risen. Are these also, to some degree, dikes in that the land is lower than the water? Yes. Uh, the engineering, the nerdy engineering term is a polder. And a polder is what you use when the water on one side is higher than the land on the other. Um, they're not a new invention. The Netherlands has been dependent on polders for hundreds of years because a third of the land surface of the Netherlands is actually below sea level. Um, so the, as you, exactly as you say, the, the wall in my book has this double function of it's partly a polder to keep the higher sea levels out and it's partly a giant fortification to keep out the people fleeing the now uninhabitable parts of the world. Uh, when you were writing the book, as it was coming up, obviously your main character is this Kavanaugh on the wall, and some of the other characters are from the wall as well. Was there any idea of enlarging it to actually include the rest of the world more than just in passing? So, for instance, the only thing we know about the elites is that they have planes. I did think about that, but... I, I wanted to keep it very close to Kavanagh's perspective, partly because that's how the book came to me. Funny thing with novels is some of the things that you rationalize or think about afterwards are things that actually at the time you didn't think about, that they were just kind of givens, that it was sort of in inherent in the setup. And I always knew that it was to be narrated by one person, and it was to be one person's journey, one person's perspective. And that did mean that there are quite a lot of things that I had thought about, I mean, I've thought about the elites and how that works, and I've thought about the others and who they are, but in order to keep it faithful to his perspective, I hope that there's a sense that they feel realer because they've been imagined, even if they're not present in the book. I mean, that's one of the odd things you can get in fiction, that you can sort of tell there's a kind of three-dimensionality you can sometimes get to a thing that's present in the writer's imagination, but not in the text. I mean, there's an interesting case study in that, I think, in the TV version of The Handmaid's Tale, um, Margaret Atwood's novel, that the first series, I mean, it's terribly cruel and bleak vision of this misogynistic world, but it has a kind of realness to it, a three-dimensionality to it. And the second series still has the cruelty, but it's not as real because it doesn't have Atwood's book behind it. So there's a kind of flatness or shallowness to it, precisely because there isn't this body of imaginative work kind of behind and around it. And I, so I do think there's something rather rather magical that you can have in fiction, things that are present even if they're not present. Which is why some novels like, say, Lord of the Rings or George R. R. Martin's books work and others don't work as well because you don't feel there's anything outside the pages. Yes, and the extraordinary thing about those imaginative worlds is that, you you know, they're kind of almost infinitely mineable. The worlds are so real that... They can keep going back, keep going back to the well. I mean, uh, to a fault, you could argue, with uh, with Tolkien. Um, though actually, Tolkien, I think, is closer to the sort of world. The world is almost the primary thing ahead of the uh, the narrative, because the way he worked, Tolkien, as I'm sure sure you know, he's a professor of Anglo-Saxon, and he his thing was he liked making up the languages. And he so started a, there. Yeah. And it's a, such such a strange sequence that he invented the languages, then invented the world 
then invented a mythology and then wrote the novel. I mean, that's a really unique trajectory. How much of Wall's world did you invent in your head that, of course, never made it into the book? Quite a lot. In the book, they talk about the change, which is sort of catastrophic climate change that's affected the whole planet, which I conceived of as being warming of about four degrees centigrade, eight to nine degrees Fahrenheit. I thought quite a lot about that, about the various impacts it would have, about the way that the society would function. So I did think quite a lot about it and then, in effect, left it out. There's a thing that in science fiction is called Tell Me Professor, when you know you make something up and then one character says, tell me, Richard, you know, what, is the, what is the quantum so, so the vortex? And then he, you, know, you explain. I don't like that aesthetically, that you kind of invent something clever and then invite yourself to explain your cleverness. It's like the old thing in magic, you never explain how the trick is done. For me, I just aesthetically, I just don't love that. And there's another thing that I think uh, that I learned in writing my novel Capital, which was set during the, as you mentioned, during the financial crisis. And I ended up knowing quite a lot about the specifics of the crash, which I left out of the novel. In fact, I wrote a nonfiction book, IOU, actually about the technicalities of the credit crunch in order to keep it out of the book. Because if you, the trouble with that kind of background and research is that the temptation is to put it in. And you have characters saying, you know, as Nigel gazed out the window of his office towards the lights of Canary Wharf gleaming in the horizon, he struggled to remember the definition of a collateralized debt obligation. You know, <laughs> right. it, that kind of explanation kills things. So I like that sense of monsters lurking in the shadows, unexplained things in the background, things that are real to the writer, but you, you can sort of sense their presence even though you can't quite see them. I guess we've definitely moved on from John W. Campbell's astounding stories or even analog where that was primary that they did that. I love that. I mean, I love that body of work. I love golden age science fiction. So it's so interesting. I'm in my mid-50s. It's so, it's so interesting how many of the things that were marginal and stray, you know, they were kind of tragic nerd things in my youth have become completely central to the culture now. And here we are happily talking about Tolkien. When my first novel came out, the first time I was in this building, 1996, when my first novel, The Debt of Pleasure, came out, you, you couldn't be talking to a literary person about Tolkien. <laughs> you, you know, if it, and if it was you across the table, you'd be grimacing and making faces. Uh, well, and, not me particularly. No, but, but <laughs> as it were, you know. They have this thing in Britain, they do a balloon debate for Booker Prize from previous years. I think it started because someone noticed that 1848 was Vanity Fair by Thackeray, uh, Jane Eyre, I can't remember which Dickens novel, but it was one of the really great Dickens novels and Wuthering Heights, all in the same year. So they started doing this thing for Booker Prize of previous years. One year I was up for 1953, which was Lord of the Flies, Kingsley Amos's first novel, Iris Murdoch's first novel, Doris Lessing's second novel, a C.P. Snow novel, and Lord of the Rings. And I was speaking up for Lord of the Rings. And they kicked me out of that balloon so fast. This was in like 1997. I was sort of out of the balloon basically before it had left the ground. And if you have that debate now, yeah, I'd be pretty confident I could win it arguing for Tolkien because the culture just has shifted. This program started a long time ago. It was a science fiction show. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I interviewed people like J.G. Ballard, Kurt Vonnegut, Asimov, uh, Bradbury, uh, so the, we started there. But let me ask you, getting back to your history and a book like The Wall, since you do know some of that golden age, those old magazines, were there any, I don't remember, maybe you do, were there any books that dealt with this kind of climate catastrophe? I mean, we've got people like Kim Stanley Robinson writing about it now, but that's what's happening now. 
I don't remember any. I'm a huge admirer of Kim Stanley Robinson. But as you say, you know, he's now, he's a very contemporary writer. No, I don't remember anything of that sort. I mean, a word that's been used uh, about this book, not by me, but it's just said is the word dystopia comes up quite a lot. And that tradition isn't a particularly just, you know, the amazing stories and, and the golden age. You know, it's a, it's a different sort of cultural moment. It wasn't a moment of peak cultural pessimism. And I think it's interesting that dystopia is much more of a theme at the moment. It's much more of a theme because we seem to be heading there. The, one element of the wall, which you don't really get at the beginning, but you fill in the data, is that this is a definitely, if not a probable reality, a very, very possible one where walls have to be put up because the third world is underwater. Yes. The writing of it started, as I said, in this dream, but some of the process was almost more like writing nonfiction in the sense it was trying to think things through rather than make things up. Less a process of imagination and imaginatively constructing things as of trying to unpick consequences and think if this, then that, and what would follow from that and have a thread of almost logic running through it. You can go online and look at a map with four degrees centigrade of warming and it is, that map is a thing of horror because large parts of the, the most densely settled bits of the planet at the moment become uninhabitable. Crops fail, there are floods, there are droughts. You know, coasts get drowned, cities get drowned. It's very difficult to look at that map and not think that actually what we would be contemplating is mass migration on a scale that the world's never seen. And that brings us a little bit toward your nonfiction. Uh, you talk about the credit swaps and what happened in 2008, John Lanchester. You talk about in that essay how we got to where we are and how the outcome is Brexit, is Trump and is authoritarian rulers around the world or want to be authoritarian rulers. I kept thinking that the one piece that you left out of the puzzle, and it started with the Iraq invasion, was the migration of Syria into Europe, which produced the fear that the politicians used to create Brexit. Yes, I mean, that was a theme. One of the things I think that's clearer, perhaps in retrospect, now is the way that insecurity is toxic in any state. We see its toxicity in modern developed societies because these are essentially, these are some of the richest, the richest, most comfortable societies the world has ever seen. But anxiety can be a very powerful force, even when, or perhaps especially when, people feel comfortable. And it's very clear in the, if you look at now, that the thing that's driving a lot of the populism and the nationalism and the kind of turning inward and the lurch to the right is anxiety and insecurity rather than things that have actually happened. You have incredibly high levels of ill feeling about immigration in countries like Hungary. There has no immigration. You know, there, there is no Syrian influx to Hungary. So what that tells you is that these are things based on apprehensions about the future. And those apprehensions were definitely a thing that the right learned to use before a lot of kind of mainstream opinion had sort of realized how, how toxic they were. Because the idea, you know, in the Brexit referendum, they used the fear that Turkey was going to join the EU. That was stated as a declarative thing. We have to leave the EU because otherwise 70 million Turks are about to join, which is openly racist and nationalistic and xenophobic and a flat lie, flat untruth. The referendum was two and a half years ago and Turkey's nowhere near joining. No one's even talking about it. But it's a sign that the, the forces of division, the forces driving these movements had 
really understood the use of insecurity long before anyone else had. In the wall, the others do break through the wall. So on some level, in, inside the psyche of John Lanchester, the fear is getting realized. I'm imagining an unimaginable world. In the world we live in now, no, we can successfully resettle migrants. A thing that happened in my childhood, I, as you mentioned, I grew up in Hong Kong. And the big theme in the politics in Southeast Asia at that point was what we called the boat people, the people fleeing Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, which lasted for 10 years. Everyone seems to have forgotten about it now, but it was a huge crisis at the time. And I, my last summer in Hong Kong, 1979, I did some volunteer work in a camp where, where boat people were being held. And it's an indelible thing for me that the image of starving, desperate people fleeing over water is not a figment of my imagination. It's a thing that has existed in the world many times. But the thing about the, the boat people crisis, everyone said, well, what can we do? You know, there are tens of thousands. And I mean, gee, there are hundreds of thousands. Of them. We can't possibly resettle them. You know, what do they expect? But actually, that's exactly what we did to the developed world resettled 2.5 million, repeat, 2.5 million boat people were successfully resettled. And you don't hear, you know, this used to be a great country and then some Laotians came here and everything went to hell, you know. know, France was great and then they let the Vietnamese in and everything collapsed. You know, that was a completely successful thing. So we do know that we can do it. We do know that we can act at scale collectively to solve these problems of migration and refugee crisis and all that. And I think it's so interesting that that's been forgotten, you know, our successful ability to cope with these things. It's a different thing, I think, from that four-degree warmer world, you know, which would, if we, if, and the whole point of it really is is the if, uh, if we were to allow it to happen. Because then we are talking about hundreds of millions or billions of people dying. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing more and more uh, millennials and post-millennials rising up and specifically saying this is about climate because they're the ones who have to live in it. Uh, there's a little bit of that in the wall because the people on the wall are really angry at their parents who let it happen, who let the change happen. There's a lot of intergenerational friction in our politics at the moment in the UK and Europe and US too. And the, one of the interesting things about Brexit, so the, the country was like 52-48, the split. If I'm trying to figure out how you voted, and I'm, I'm not allowed to ask you how you voted, but I'm allowed to ask you one question. I know nothing about you. You're in a black box. I'm allowed to ask you one question. The question that tells me with most reliability how you voted is how old are you? That's a new thing in our politics, to be that divided along generational lines for the main data point about someone's beliefs and values is simply their age. And one of the things I was imagining in the book is that division being exacerbated and magnified through the issue of climate change because in some of the grimmer versions of the what could happen to the earth when it happens within a two generations or one generation you would have a situation in which people effectively grew up on different planets it's difficult to think that there wouldn't be an element of direct intergenerational accusation and blame brexit what was the breakdown there under 25 70 percent remain over 65 70 percent leave so really yeah so it's an absolutely pure Um, intergenerational thing. And at the last general election in 2017, if the franchise cut off at 25, so only 25 25 to 18 year olds can vote, there are 650 parliamentary seats in the UK. If under 25 year olds were the only people allowed to vote, 
the Conservatives, instead of winning the election and being the party of government, wouldn't have won a single seat. That's a new thing. So it sounds as if, given the two years since Brexit, if they had a new election, it's very possible Brexit would lose. It's weirder than that. If we re-ran the referendum and only people who voted last time were allowed to vote and they had to vote the same way. So in other words, you have to trudge back to the ballot box and put the, the cross in the ballot box in the same box you did last time. If we did that, it would pretty much be a tie because so many Leave voters have died because they're older. So the margin was about a million and on the differential death rates, over three quarters of a million Leave voters have died. So the weird thing about Brexit is that if it takes a year or two to implement, by the time it is implemented, most living people who voted will have voted to remain. I mean, that is just beyond, you know, beyond parody. Well, what we're seeing in this country, of course, is younger people getting more involved and voting more, and that is already changing things. You make a point in one of your essays that you can see the change with the election of people like Macron or Trudeau younger people, which would seem on some level to give an edge to someone like Kamala Harris or Beto O'Rourke or even Mayor Pete, since they're younger, just simply because they don't live in the same world that you and I grew up in. I think there is an intergenerational shift coming. I think climate is one of the areas where you see it most clearly and most starkly because and oddly enough, I think almost the younger people are, you know, we're now starting to have these school strikes and things like that. You have this this strange reversal where it's as if the children are the adults. They're the ones who understand the scale of it. They're the ones who, and particularly this thing of not just accepting the reality of climate change, but accepting its reality as an emergency, understanding that it's an emergency. That's a big intergenerational thing. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays in politics. I mean, the thing that was is really strange about the moment, talking about Macron and Trudeau, the two oldest republics in the world, I mean, more or less, um, are the USA and France. And both presidencies were won by people who were running for office for the first time, not just relative political novices or whatever, actually the first time they'd ever stood for election. You know, they hadn't stood to be dog catcher. And they're president of the two oldest republics in the world, in Macron and Trump. That's, that's genuinely strange. And I think it does tell you something about voters wanting new perspectives. I mean, it's, obviously, it's a catastrophic mistake in the case of Trump. But I think that tells us that there is an appetite for people who see, just see things in a different frame. I've been, you know, on, online, most of my social media friends are older. Uh, there are some younger ones there. Um, they don't seem to get, say, why someone like a Joe Biden is out of touch as well as the Washington establishment, which I don't know if you're as, you know, in deep with it, but if you read the op-ed pages, if you watch, say, you know, MSNBC or any of the networks, you see a conventional wisdom that, to me at least, is not wisdom at all, and it's coming from a place that died 20 years ago. I don't f follow American politics in granular detail, so you, you know much better than I do. I do think there's a, a, a kind of crisis of conventional wisdom, though. Um, I think there's a, a sense of, you know, the insiders who have this sort of self-appointed sense of knowing where the center is and, 
you know, what the commonsensical view is and, you know, um, listen with deep respect to the what Davos man thinks. I think there's a very profound disconnect between them and the world outside, what people, what, are the, what subjects are on people's minds, what people are thinking about. I mean, I partly, I come across this, you know, I spent about a decade engaging with economics and finance to write this, to write that novel Capital and then have kind of kept it up. And in a strange way, I wouldn't say exactly, uh, exactly regret it because I don't, but one of the things that's been borne in on me is that that tells you what Davos man thinks. You know, if you can kind of understand what GDP figures are and what, what they mean and speak that language. And I did learn that language. I wrote a book called How to Speak Money about that language, the language that the kind of insiders speak. But it doesn't tell you anything about what people are thinking in Wisconsin. It doesn't tell you anything about what's likely to happen in 2020. And that thing about, you know, 3% GDP growth, therefore everybody in the country must be feeling very, very pleased and content with their lot. That's a kind of op-ed Davos man fantasy. You know, those sorts of numbers, that sort of insiderly consensus just hasn't got a clue about the texture of people's lives and the preoccupations on their minds. In that uh, July essay, you talk a little bit about how the very rich got richer, the very poor actually did better. And this is the longest segment in modern recorded history where the middle didn't move or dropped. Yeah, where the global middle class, which is basically us, it's everybody in the developed world, has, has had a long period of stagnating incomes and a kind of transfer of affluence in two directions, one towards the global poor, which most of us, I think, is fair enough. You know, if we're relatively slightly less well-off compared to people in the developing and emerging world who can suddenly have clean water for the first time or whose, you know, daughters get educated for the first time, I think a, a lot of us are fine with that. I certainly know I am. But the other people who've been doing incredibly well are the famous 1%, and it's actually subsets of 1%, like the 0.1% are doing fantastically well, and the 0.01, even better still, and the 0.0001, they're kind of making out like bandits, which arguably is what they are. And I think that that's what slightly breaks the model of, you know, relative decline for us. We still have a comfortable life, but the poor are doing better. Well, if that's true, if we're sacrificing a little for the de developing and emerging world, how come the very rich are taking historically unprecedented shares of the spoils? the very rich in their airplanes <laughs> flying over our wall, even as we speak now. You mentioned in, I think it was the Guardian interview, about how things just kind of go along little by little. Nothing is really bad. It just gets worse. And then suddenly, boom. And that, that seems to be a cycle in economics and climate and everything. Can you go into that a little? Well, it's just a thing in relationships, too, that, you know, sort of bad relationships go on, you think, oh, that can't go on, it can't go on any longer, and it does, and it can't go on any longer, and it does, can't go any longer, and it, do, and it does, and then suddenly everything is overturned. And I do think that's a phenomenon you see, yeah, I can't remember who spelt it out, but yeah, things carry on longer than you think possible, and they change more quickly than you, than you think possible. Frankly, I thought there was likely to be another economic or financial crisis that, that, that would feed into our politics, because lots of things weren't fixed in 2008, nine too many things were left where they were and you know the basic way that finance operates wasn't reformed and it was quite likely I still think it's quite likely you can have another kind of convulsion and I thought that would be the trigger for political change that might well come from the left the kind of thing we're starting to see now the people the people you were talking about 
and a younger generation of you know politicians from that side. But actually, it turned out that it was the other way around. It was a convulsion, and it and it was a sort of nationalist and reactionary convulsion coming from the right that kind of overturned the table. And you know, you see behind Brexit and Trump, and also these really quite significant populist movements all across France. Because you mentioned President Macron. You know, everyone was saying. It was a relief that the centrist, in quotes, centrist won. But in the process of that relief, I think people underplayed the fact that Marine Le Pen, who's effectively a fascist from the National Front, got 35% of the vote. And that is a very, very frightening number for an old, st settled, stable democracy, for the, the party of the really, truly extreme right. Well, now with Macron's numbers so low, where are those people going? Are they going to Le Pen? There's an, a European election coming up in May, and the European elections often throw up rather startling results because it it's a pan-year, it's across the whole continent, and the turnouts are often very low, and so it often favours parties on one end or the other. And I think Le Pen might well be the largest party uh, in the European elections. I think she was, I think that her party was last time. And I think she's preparing, because I was in France at the time of the last election, and you could sort of tell that her game plan was to come back. So that was in 2017, and her game plan was to come back in 2022. You know, you could almost imagine the bumper sticker. You know, I told you they're all the same, you didn't believe me, and I'm telling you again, they're all, they're all the same. The only way you can actually get change in the system is to vote for me. And I think that's a real danger that, you know, uh, the disinfected voters would say, OK, you know, we, we gave the sensible people one last try. The hell with it. But that happened in the U.S. Trump's election probably helped Macron get elected, too, just simply because people saw what a horror he'd be. And now there's the reaction to Trump, which hopefully, you know, maybe some of the cultists will wake up to. But. Maybe not. Possibly. I mean, I don't know how much people learn from each other's experiences. Nobody voted for Trump because of Brexit. There's no causal link. Someone in Pennsylvania thinks, well, you know, the right. British have decided to assert their sovereignty. Therefore, I'm going to I voted for Obama twice, but I'm voting for Trump this time. You know, it's not causal. But the thing that you have is the underlying patterns are quite similar. I think some of the underlying emotional things, which is the thing I was talking about, speaking the language of economics doesn't really ha help explain you know, at a deep level, explain that. The sense of being passed over, ignored, forgotten. I think a big thing behind Brexit was this feeling of nobody cares what we think. Everybody ignores us. We're completely taken for granted. But I tell you what, try ignoring this. I think that the try ignoring this is a big factor in these populist votes. My fear is that we, we haven't seen the end of try and ignore this. And we don't know how social media is going to affect it. Social media is clearly a vector for ideas of all sorts and seems to be implicated, I don't know if it's causal or it's correlated, with a kind of acceleration of conspiracy theories and extremist theories of all sorts. But maybe, looking tentatively for a sign of optimism, maybe that cycle will also burn through quicker. There's another wall, which is the wall between people like you and me and the Trump voters or the Brexit voters. That's a concrete wall. I know most people have given up on trying to breach that wall. Given up on trying to persuade each other. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's definitely a risk of that. It's easier than ever just to talk to people who already agree with you. But if we give up on that, we, we're really giving up on the whole idea of democratic politics. I think it's important to 
pay attention to the fact that we need functioning public spaces, even if they don't look like they're functioning. We still need to be able to, even if it's standard standard a soapbox and deliver speeches in in the presence of the other person. We really need that because the whole premise of democracy is that that's how you process things. You know, it's a mechanism. It's not a solution. It's a mechanism. John Lanchester, in doing some research on your life, you wrote a memoir about your mother and father. Your mother was a nun who left the convent, changed her name, changed her age, remarried. How old were you when you found out? It was after she died. So, I mean, immediately after her death, just before her funeral. So I was 36. And you had no idea that she was not the person she said she was? Well, she was very much the person she said she was in so many respects. You know, she was very sort of forceful, very present person. Well, not effectively. What she did do, she took her sister's legal identity um, to make herself sound 10 years younger than she was in order to marry my dad. But when I was born, she was 40, nearly 42. And that was in, in 1962, you know, when it was much rarer to have a, a baby at that age. So she said she was 32. Yeah. So the name on my birth certificate, you know, the mother listed on that isn't actually my mother, it's my aunt. And her legal identity was actually not her identity. It was her youngest, one of her, she was the eldest of eight sisters. It was one of her younger sisters' identities. And that was quite a strange thing for someone who was very, a very kind of super law-abiding. I mean, she'd been a mother superior. She'd run a convent school in India. You know, she had tremendous force of personality around being right, you know, being morally in the right, and was very, uh, she was a devout Catholic, was very much a sort of moral force. So it was, it was deeply strange finding that there was this act of identity theft, really, at the core of her legal being. And when you went back to the convent, did they say, oh, she just disappeared or died? No, uh, she did disappear very suddenly, and it was a big scandal in India, because she was quite a prominent, in South Indian education, she was sort of pretty famous actually because it was a, it's a very well-known school it's actually a campus in the city it was then called madras is now called chennai called church park and it was the first big english language medium school which at that point was for mixed race illegitimate children of british soldiers and ta- tamil peasants john lanchester you mentioned earlier that you were working on a novel that's not a science fiction novel, I take it. I don't know. Th- well, but the truth is I can barely remember because once I got going on this, I put it in a drawer and I haven't actually looked at it. And so when I finish, I'm doing this tour and then I've got, I'm going to Germany and do a few more promotional things. And then I'm going to take it out of the drawer and I hope I can resuscitate it. Because I had breaks in writing a book before. I actually found it quite helpful, come back fresh. But I don't know for a fact that it's going to work, so I have to admit I am a bit anxious about it. Another question. You were a fan of science fiction all along, yet this is your first in that genre. Had you thought about it before? No, I'd never thought about writing it. That was one of the things that was odd about it, that it kind of popped out once from this sort of dream and then thinking about it. It sort of largely popped out fully formed. I didn't have enormous formal back and forth I didn't rang you know have to kind of beat the structure of the book into submission it sort of emerged whole and it was as if I'd kind of dreamt it or cooked up the whole thing in my unconscious so I had absolutely no intention of writing this book but then next thing you know I did and you've got a short story collection you're trying to I have a a few short stories I've written and I'm I'm kind of going to press on with them until they stop coming and at that point I think I'll, I'll declare 
declare if not victory uh, declare a truce and um, you know think okay that collection's done and one final question do you have another essay coming out in the near future I have a couple of things um, the kind of longish one I've been thinking about for a while is one, one about universal basic income and that's going to pop up after you write it or I mean I keep hoping I'll I'll wake up and find I have written it in a dream ideally but um, no I haven't you know I still have a bit more I still don't quite know what I think about it that's the I, um, the, the, the great luxury that the London Review of Books gives me is the time to actually get it fully cooked in my head there are enough hot takes in the world I try and go for a cold take in the sense of you know have really fully thought it through and know what I think and I'm not I'm not there yet with uh, UBI if you do a search, you will find both an article, a very good article in The Guardian about the wall. And if you go to the London Review of Books, you'll find that essay that I was talking about. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.